Hello, Julia Campbell here with a very time-sensitive pre-roll. I have opened the doors to my brand new course for nonprofits, The Digital Fundraising Formula. It's a step-by-step blueprint to launching wildly successful online fundraising campaigns and a formula that you can use over and over again. And the doors are only open until September 20th. Class starts September 20th. So go to digitalfundraisingformula.com digitalfundraisingformula.com and take a look, sign up, register. And I really hope to see you on the inside. All right, let's get to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Nonprofit Nation podcast. I'm your host, Julia Campbell. I'm here today with my brand new friend, Sabrina Walker Hernandez. She's the president and CEO of Supporting World Hope. And Sabrina is a certified consultant, coach, and facilitator who has set fundraising records, taking a boys and girls club in Texas from $750,000 to $2.5 million, leading a $12 million capital campaign. And she has a certificate of nonprofit management from Harvard Business School. And she woke up very early this morning on our behalf just to be here with us today. So thank you, Sabrina. <laughs> You're welcome. I would only do it for you. As I said, I have followed you and think you are brilliant when it comes to social media. So thank you. That is so sweet. I did not, I did not pay her to say that. No, thank she you did so <laughs> much. I think I, and we were talking about this before, I first heard your name when I saw Sipping Tea with Sabrina and I saw that Rachel Muir, who's actually also going to be on the podcast, I saw that you were doing a session together and I just thought, this is fabulous. I love the name Sipping Tea. I love the, I love the idea of just kind of dishing and talking to other fundraisers about fundraising. That's something that I do all the time. So I wanted to, I want to hear your story. We usually begin with your story, how you got involved with the work you're doing today. Well, it's interesting how I got involved with the work that we do today. I do today in nonprofit world. So I went to school and I guess if you go all the way back to the beginning, it should not be shocking because one, my mother is a missionary in the church. And I remember growing up and we did a lot of community service (laughs) projects. So I should not be shocked that I landed in this role. And actually all my siblings in some way or another landed in this type of role. But 
what happened with me is I just knew that I was very argumentative as a child. So my mom used to say, you can be a good lawyer. So she yes. told me that, oh, my you mom know. Told me that too. And my dad was a lawyer and I think yeah. it's sad I didn't become one. Yeah. So I thought in my head, since you know, I was young, I was gonna be a lawyer. So when I went to college, I majored in pre-law and I was going to be pre-law and poli-sci and I was going to be a lawyer. And then my senior year, I did an internship with a nonprofit called Advocacy Resource Center for Housing. Mm. And I mediated between landlord and tenant. And I worked with a lot of attorneys and I figured, yeah, I don't want to be an attorney. Mm -hmm. And I'll say this. I know your dad was an attorney, but I will say this. I'm not. I'm not in love with attorneys. Trust me. Okay. They paid my bills for a while, but yeah, yeah, I will say this. There is no right and wrong in the law. You know, when you're an attorney, there's Mm -hmm. only the law. And so that just didn't kind of sit well with me. True. Yeah. Very, very true. So I was like, you know, that's not what I want to do. But what I did fall in love with is I fell in love with the nonprofit world. Mm -hmm. And so immediately graduated, got my graduate degree in public administration and worked for the county for a while and actually monitored all the nonprofits in the county for CDBG for the Community Development Block Grant. So I had like 30 agencies under me. So I really got oh. to see the ins and outs of not the nonprofit, the back end, wow. you know, the unsexy part, yeah. the audits, the 990s, oh, all the site that. visits, and, yeah. the site visits and all of that, but still was in love with the nonprofit mm. world. So when an opportunity came up, I immediately went into Boys and Girls Clubs, which if you don't know anything about Boys and Girls Club, it's a wonderful mission. And I was there for 20 years, for 20 whole years with Boys and Girls Club. But I started out and I think it's the best way to start out. I started out in direct services. Mm -hmm. I worked with first time juvenile offenders in a teen court program under the Boys and Girls Club. And then I did operations for five years, which for those operations people out there, I feel for them because they're stuck in the middle is what I call it. The middleness of management. They have the CEO on the top and then they have the staff on the bottom and it's constantly bumping, bumping. And then for the 15 years, I served as the CEO of that organization. So that's kind of how I got here. Do you find that's a... No, I mean, that's not like a typical story, but that trajectory is pretty common mm-hmm. where people come from direct services and then they are a program officer and then they are either development director and then they're an executive director. Yeah, so. I think I think that, that that's a, actually I think it makes you a better fundraiser. When you yeah. understand what's happening at the program level, you remember the challenges. Because sometimes, you know, as a CEO or fundraiser, you can be disconnected from the program. But when you were there and you remember, you know, trying to spend gold into straw, you know, <laughs> all of that, uh-huh. it, it comes back to you. And so you can exactly. use that to your advantage. Exactly. Now, that's a really good point because I have never been in programs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I served in the U.S. Peace Corps and I was there for two and a half years and I was designing programs there and I've been an intern and a volunteer and all sorts of things in nonprofit. But when I started my real paid career, it was immediately in development and grant writing. And I tell this story pretty often, you might have heard it, but when I had my first development director job... I worked at a shelter and my 
office was physically like in the other part of town, like not where the programs happened, not where the executive director was, not where support groups happened. I felt very isolated. Right. It's challenging because what you're selling, for lack of a better, is the mission. And if you were close to the mission, for me, it was just easier. So when we built our building, when we did the capital campaign, mm-hmm. I had an option of putting my office in the building with the kids or not. And I just chose to put it in the building with the kids because it's something about hearing those kids when they come in after school and the whole atmosphere of the building changes. And it's the mission coming to life. And that inspired me every day. That was one of the reasons why I I just love the feel of the mission. I think anytime a fundraiser can put the mission in front of a donor or remind themselves why they're doing something, it just makes it a little bit easier because we all know it's very stressful, very stressful. stressful. Well, it looks like you've had a lot of success. Your LinkedIn bio also caught my eye because it's actually one of the best LinkedIn headlines I've read. Well, look at <laughs> I don't you. think we talk enough Thank about <laughs> our accomplishments and you put it right out there. You wrote, I raised $14 million in the third poorest county in the U.S. Yes. So now you've got to tell us that story. So, yeah, you know, it's interesting. From the beginning, when I went into the organization, like I said, I moved from program to operations and then to CEO. Prior to that, the executive that had been there had been there for 30 years. So she was she was wonderful, wonderful person. Her name is Mary Flores. I always like to speak her name because she was a great mentor to me. But one of the things that when she retired, I had a plan. I had a goal, you know? And so that goal was to, initially the goal was to get the budget to a million dollars. And so starting out with $750,000, one of the things that I first did was, okay, where is the $750,000 coming from? One, how long has it been coming from these sources? Are these sources, you know, I can depend on, you know, I don't have to worry about. And then When I did that, I mapped that out. I was like, oh, this is very doable. All I have to do is find this much. And so that's kind of how we went about it. And then we came to a crossroads. And when I say we, it's the board, because it takes a great board of directors to help you. It is not one person. I didn't have a development person at the time. So it was uh, myself and the board. So at that point, We just kind of sat down and we said, okay, where are the gaps? Where can we do something different, be a little creative? And so we really looked at social enterprise. We had a consultant come in and we actually created a rental company. I call them moon jumps where I am. Some people call them inflatables. Oh, Uh, yeah. Like bouncy houses? Yeah, the bouncy houses. (laughs) Moon jumps. (laughs) We call them moon jumps. That's funny. Yeah, let me clarify that. We call them moon jumps here in South Texas. Um, We call them bouncy houses here in Boston, I believe. Bouncy houses. So we had those already. Or bounce houses, yeah. Bounce houses, yeah. We had them. We had the facility. We had the chairs, the round tables. We had a board member that owned a U-Haul company that gave us a U-Haul. We wrapped it, 
we, you know, we started a rental company. That rental company bought in, a, you know, maybe about uh, $25,000 a year. And then we looked into, we got very creative. We looked into bingo revenue because we're in Texas and everybody plays bingo. Yes. I, when I lived in Virginia, we had a lot of bingo revenue yeah. as well. Yeah. So we looked into bingo revenue and did that. And we just really explored different avenues. And then Love when it. I grew up, as is what I say, On behalf of all development directors out there, including yourself, I'm going to apologize to my first development director. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. We accept. Yeah. Her name was Monica Pena and she was fabulous. I was not. Let me just say. (laughs) And I will say I was not because this is one of the lessons that I learned. And if anybody can take Mm -hmm. something from this, when you are a CEO and you're doing it, all on your own for a very long time, it is very hard to let go. And you can cripple your development person because you're not letting go. Mm -hmm. And I didn't fully understand the role of the development director at the time when I got a development director. I just knew all the big, bigger organizations had a development director. So I got to get myself a development director, <laughs> you know? But we, we don't know what who it is or what they do, but we need one. We need one. So it was like, so yeah, I, I it was me, not her. I will gladly admit that. But, you know, and, and looking at that, we were able to really focus on individual giving. Mm-hmm. And I think individual giving made a huge difference in our trajectory because individual once you get individuals involved we had zero when i say zero individual money coming in wow it was zero and so we were able to build up our individual giving base you know leveraging the capital campaign and and rolling those over into endowed gifts and launching an annual campaign and things like that so now we are looking at we get about 80 in our community i think it's very good we get about 80 to $120,000 a year in annual gifts. That's great. Yeah. So I think that's good. And, 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 you know, again, that's when I retired, that's where we're at. And I'm hoping the person that's there now takes it to the next level. Yeah. That that's kind of was our journey. That's interesting. With my executive director, I had the opposite experience when I came in as development director, I was brand new, brand new hire. They'd never had a development director. And I believe what they wanted to do was just sort of never talk to me again and put me in an office and I would just raise like $500,000 out of thin air. (laughs) So I kind of had the exact opposite. I wasn't micromanaged. I wasn't really managed. I was (laughs) given anything. I had to really figure it out all on my own. But that leads me, actually, that brings up a really great point. You might have some advice I have a lot of listeners and a lot of clients and students that are that are executive directors. So what is your advice to them? How can they let go if they are that micromanager or if they're hiring a new person and they have been doing it themselves for so long? Right. I just wish someone would have set me aside mm. and or I should have educated myself a little bit more and just ask, you know, what does a development director actually do? But when you, when you do ask that question, you get multiple answers. I, I do, did find that out. Even trying to bring myself back up to speed, you get multiple, multiple answers. But just doing a little research, 
now I, I understand more the role of the development director in how I should have used them. So I guess look at the different roles and then figure out how it fits with your organization. I think with the organization that I was running at the time, my development director should have been more of a, I would say a coordinator supporting the board and myself in fundraising, coming up with the scripts and helping with um, learning about our major donors and informing us about our major donors. I did try to, you know how we do it in a nonprofit world too. Mm -hmm. I did try to say, can you do development and grant writing? Uh, and marketing know, and social media and, so, yeah. and volunteer management. Yeah. Yeah. You can't do that. You can't <laughs> do that. That's tip one, right? Don't, you can't, you can't. It's just an unrealistic expectation. If they're there for development, let that be their focus. Make the donor experience the best experience possible that they can give. Because what I have learned over time is the donor experience matters. Making the donor feel like a hero really matters. And that fundraising is only 5% of the ask. And 60% is cultivation. Mm-hmm. And 15% is recognition and stewardship. So if you can get your development person to really focus on helping you cultivate donors and then doing that recognition and stewardship and that thank you, then that's where their focus could be because that's going to get you reoccurring gifts. And that's the whole goal. You want a great experience so they can give again and again and again. And ultimately, you know, plan gifts is what you want, really. So that's what I learned. I love that. Well, tell me about what you do now in your business. So you, you retired from the boys and girls club and now you help people become amazing fundraisers. So tell me about that. Yes. So I retired in 2018. I was going to retire anyway, but I had some health issues that kind of said, okay, you really going to retire. So in 2018, I got diagnosed with two cancers. I got diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma and with multiple myeloma. And both of those are blood cancers and they're actually stress-related cancers. So in one of my chemo moments, you know, usually that third or fourth chemo is not fun. You, you, the first one you do, you think, oh, I got this, you know? There's, you know I don't know. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I have to be honest. I've seen yeah. people go through it. Yeah, yeah. I don't want you to know. That's the whole point yeah. of why I started a company too. But the fourth one is not fun. And I remember my mm-hmm. husband telling me, you know, you have to retire. You can't keep doing this. And I was like, okay, okay. You know? And so, but then as soon as I said it, I said, yeah, on loop in my head. I love what I do. I love what I do. Just kept playing on loop in my head. Mm -hmm. And so I decided I was going to launch this company called Supporting World Hope. And I launched this company, believe it or not, from a hospital bed at MD Anderson. I had to spend 30 days in there anyway for stem cell transplant. Wow. So I was like, okay, how are we going to use this time? And so I did the business plan, did the you know, marketing plan and did all of that because the reason why I did it is really truly because I don't want others, nonprofit professionals to experience the stress that I did in this journey. And it can be very stressful. You, you're wearing multiple hats you're responsible for the organization. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know you have a board of directors, but we all have to remember that the board of directors, 
are volunteers, right? They have mm-hmm. other obligations. They have family. They have church. You do too, but you are the CEO, executive director of the organization. Yep. You drive the bus. You drive the bus, right? And so as the person who is driving the bus, it is very stressful, even when things are going good. Mm-hmm. You know, if things were going good in our organization. But as one of my friends says, yeah, you get there, but it's hard staying there. You know, you get to that t- 2.5 million, but you got to stay there. And it's a, it's, a, it's a grind to stay there. And so that's why I created my company, Supporting World Hope. I want to support small nonprofit boards and staff mm-hmm. and help them understand that it's all about building relationships. Mm-hmm. And if they build those relationships, it will convert into more donations. A lot of times nonprofits would get on that special event hamster wheel. Oh, yeah. And jump from one event to the next event to the next event. And they don't understand all that time that they're putting into it. And staff hours and board hours and volunteer hours is not a great return on investment. Mm -hmm. But again, if you spend 60% in cultivation and 15% in thanking, you're going to grow your organization budget. And it's about building those relationships. So that's really why I started my company. I have a lot of free resources. I have a a VIP library with all types of sample documents. I also do like live Q&A coaching in my group. I do a webinar once a month that really is free, that really, you know, I say the quality is so good, you would pay for it if you need it. (laughs) So I have no problem with that. And then I also do the sipping tea segment. So I do a lot of those things like that because I just want to support the nonprofit professional. It's an unthanked industry sometimes. Very much so. Hey there. I'm interrupting this episode to share an absolutely free training that I created that's getting nonprofits of all sizes big results. Sure, you've been spending hours on social media, but what can you actually show for it? With all this posting and Instagramming and TikToking, does it really translate into action? In my free training, I'll show you exactly how to take people from passive fans to passionate supporters, and I'll give you specific steps to create social media content that actually converts. Head on over to nonprofitsthatconvert.com. Again, that's nonprofitsthatconvert.com and start building a thriving social media community for your nonprofit right now without a big team, lots of tech overwhelm, or getting stuck on the question, what do I do next? Let me show you how it's done. I can't wait to see what you create. a lot of what we do as consultants is therapy. We need to be trained as therapists because our clients, you know, it's sort of like you said, you were very well equipped, I think mentally and emotionally to become an executive director. But a lot of what I see a lot of small nonprofits is the program officer becomes the manager and they don't want to do the managing. They don't want to manage people. They don't want to do payroll. I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to do it either. (laughs) That's why I did not want to become an executive director. But I think there's that skill set and that leadership piece that is so important, especially for fundraising. I love 
what you say in terms of building relationships. This is a huge piece of what I teach my students about social media is that it's not just purely transactional. It's not just like a money spigot you can turn on. I mean, it's really about building a vibrant community of passionate supporters that would miss you if you were gone. Right. So, so true. That's what I think. And also fundraising, I feel is about building a shared identity with the donor. So when I think about causes I give to, I would put a bumper sticker on my car. You know, I would put a sign in my yard. I'd wear a t-shirt because it's part of who I am and it's part of how I express what I stand for. So what do you think the best fundraisers do differently? I think the best fundraisers, what they do differently is they make it about the donor. And you have to make it about the donor. I think a lot of times nonprofits or those that are new to the fundraising realm, they make it about the organization. And that's that's okay. But we share a lot of times, and I did this too, and, and I'm not speaking um, in a way that saying, oh, poor thing, you didn't know what to do. I did it too. I would always say, oh, we serve this many kids. Oh, you know, this is this is how many meals we serve to the kids. Mm-hmm. And this is what, you know, what we did. And I always kind of led with that. And then as you know better, you do better, right? That's mm-hmm. what they say. So you yeah. educate yourself. And that's one of the things that I want to piggyback on. Professional development and investing in yourself, especially if you're new, especially if you are a program person that's moved up to an executive position, you have to invest in yourself, right? The organization needs to invest in you. So if your organization and your board has not set aside any dollars for professional development, that is the conversation that you need to have. Because Mm -hmm. one of my biggest challenges was people People, people, when you talked about managing people, I would, I would always say I could do this job if it wasn't for the people. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So it was, it was hard. So you need, you need to get training around how to deal with difficult people. You need to, you need to have a coach. I always say, have a coach, someone that you would like, you said a therapist that you can talk to. You can get advice. Fundraising therapist. (laughs) Fundraising therapist. Cause you, you need that. That's what's going to make you a better CEO or executive director. You have to set aside, the organization needs to set aside dollars for that professional development because Mm -hmm. it doesn't happen overnight. And if you're stuck in your silo, what generally happens as a CEO and what my experience was, and I don't think it, people's experiences are any different. Every day is different in, a, in the nonprofit world. You go in with your little list and you think you're going to get this done today and you something wind blows up, up. Yep. Something blows up. You're putting out fires here. You're putting out fires there. You never get to your list, you know, so you get stuck in your silo. And if you don't get out of your silo, you don't know how to make this better, right? And so when I talk about training and getting out, it's also for your mental health. Mm -hmm. To go out to a conference and talk to other executives in the same boat that you're in, even when they have a $10 million budget, you hear them talking and complaining about the same the things, same things. <laughs> that, you, that you are. You go, oh, okay. It gives you a different perspective, right? Mm-hmm. And you get out there and you see how other organizations do it. 
You see other events or other ways they're developing relationships. There's no point to reinvent the wheel. We yeah. are a powerful industry exactly. as a nonprofit. There's, there's millions of us. We yeah. just need to connect more talk more, mm-hmm. share on this journey and stop trying to do it on your own, in your silo, in your community. You got to get out. You, you got to. Love it. I love it. I think what really stymies a lot of nonprofits is we have this view that we're competing with every other nonprofit in the world and there's enough money to go around, right? So <laughs> <laughs> there is enough money to go around. And I will say this, just to kind of go back to another question that you, that you asked sure. me about the 2.5 million, like, how did you get there? The only way that I got there after you hit a certain wall is collaboration. That's the only way you're going to get there as far as like the larger grants, like the federal or the state grants. The only way I was able, you know, I thought I was bad, honey. I could apply for these grants and be my own fiscal agent. I don't need anybody (laughs) else. That was my mentality at first, right? Oh, federal (laughs) grants are also such a nightmare too. Yeah, they're they're horrible. But sometimes the money is so, you're like, okay. Oh yeah, you need that money. (laughs) Yeah, you need that money. So, you know, I I was applying on my own just as a single organization and going, why are we not getting them? Well, you know, they like collaboration. You got to get in the sandbox and play well with others. Mm -hmm. So form your good coalition of collaborative organizations that you work with and start applying together in a collaboration. And that was the only way we opened up the door. I first, my first collaborative grant, I did not write it. Um, Let me say that when I got a chance to hire me a grant writer, I did that right away. Because it's not my glory. It's, mm-hmm. it's not your no zone trouble. of genius. <laughs> no, it's not my zone. I like that. It's not my zone. Of I didn't genius. come up with that. It's in a book called The Big Leap, which is okay. An incredible I gotta book. go to that book. I gotta go to that book because it's not my zone of genius. Mm-hmm. Um, so not that I didn't write grants to the very end. I did, but they were like the twenty five thousand and under. But as a matter of fact, how I got a grant writer was I partnered with another neighboring agency and we hired a grant writer together. They came on my staff because I had better benefits and then that nonprofit reimbursed me half of the expense. But I say that that grant writer wrote our first collaborative grant and we got $832,000 from the state. Wow. So it can money well worth it, money well worth it. Mm -hmm. Get in the sandbox and play with others. Don't see each other as competitors because together we can do so much more than we can apart. It is okay. Like, like Julia said, there is enough money to go around more than enough money to go around. And imagine if you're in a geographical area and it's a bunch of nonprofits and no, and you don't have a telethon in your community. What is wrong with y'all getting together, approaching a network and doing a telethon? Why, like why a giving are, day. Yeah, like a giving day. Why y'all throwing sand in each other's eyes <laughs> right? <laughs> instead of working together? Right. That's, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. That's my soapbox issue. I love that. Oh, I love that. I have one last question. I have well, a couple questions. One is, can you give us just sort of a, to wrap it up, but I'm sure we could talk for hours about this particular topic. Give us some tips on how we can convince our board to fundraise. I just know that's a question I get all the time. I'm sure you do too. 
Yes. And I'm sure it's a it's an hour long discussion, but what are some of your top tips as a former ED who I know I'm sure struggled with it? Yes. So this is what I tell CEOs when they start talking about fundraising. So first I say expand what your thoughts are on fundraising, because a lot of CEOs and a lot of people in general think that fundraising is about asking for money. And for me, that's only 5% of the fundraising process. If you notice, I've been talking about fundraising as cultivation, Mm -hmm. as stewardship, and now as asking. And so for me, the fundraising process is about 20% is identifying and qualifying donors. You know, do they have the capacity to give? Do they have an affinity for the organization? That for me is a role that the board can be very active in, and that's called a door opener. Mm -hmm. And so my biggest fundraiser on my board never asked for money. They were door opener. And when I talk about they raised a lot of money, I'm talking about half million plus without asking for any money. I'll share that if we have time at the end. So then the next part is 60% is cultivation. You know, asking donors out to lunch. Doing those discovery questions, meeting with them, having them come in on a tour of the, of the facility, giving them opportunities to see the mission in action, whatever that is, whether it's a volunteer day, engaging them in surveys, asking them their opinions, all of those kind of things. That's 60 percent of the fundraising process. Mm-hmm. And then five percent is asking for money. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes board members, they feel nervous about asking for money. Right. And I'm okay with that. And you have to be okay with that as a CEO as well. Mm -hmm. Because what happens when you go on those donor meetings is you take that board member with you because that board member is there to lend credibility to Mm -hmm. the process. They are the community person that's not getting paid. They believe in the mission Mm -hmm. and they're lending their credibility. So you have that donor face-to-face meeting. And as the CEO, you utter the words, will you consider a gift of a thousand dollars to our organization? Mm -hmm. 5%. That's it. 5% of the fundraising process is asking for money. And then finally, the last 15% is stewardship. How well you say thank you to people. And so your board member can play roles in each of those phases. It's not just fundraising, but when we hear board and nonprofit, people immediately go to that 5%. That's the smallest piece of the pie. The smallest piece. I know. That's the one we're all scared of. So that's why. That's the one we're all scared (laughs) of. The one where we say, I don't know anybody rich. I've heard that so many times. I don't like begging for money. I don't Mm -hmm. like asking strangers or friends for money. I'm like, well, who's left? Uh, Right. That's always the question. So when that happens, like with the board member that I had, and I I speak her name because she's fabulous. Her name is Millie Smith. And imagine Millie. Millie um, was works at a bank. She recently retired. We're both in retirement mode. Um, she works at a bank. She works in BSA, which is the fraud department. So, you know, her personality, very introvert. Uh-huh. You know, I, you could see a person like that. It. Yeah. Not wanting to ask for money. I'm not going to ask for money. So we had a conversation and I was like, okay, Millie, what are you willing to do? She's like, I'll introduce you to anybody you want me to introduce you to any of my contacts. Yep. She introduced me to the bank owner. 
not mm. the bank president, but the bank owner. The bank owner then allowed the bank president to be the co-chair of our capital campaign, which led to the $12 million capital campaign yep. success. And not only that, we got the first grant we did for the capital campaign once we got into like the foundation phase wow. was with the Maybe Foundation and we got denied. And that was one of the first times I cried in the job because I was like, oh. I don't know how, how we're going to do this because we needed that foundation in yep. order to open up the doors for the other foundations. Yeah. And so the bank president, he said, well, let's just fly up there and talk to them. And I was like, OK, I'll start booking flights and I'll start doing that. And he was looked at me. And he says, the bank has a plane. And I was like, <laughs> Wow. I don't usually roll with people who have planes. Exactly. You know? <laughs> That's not really where my brain goes. Right. Is that awesome. Goes. So I wind up in this plane. We go up to the Maybe Foundation. It was very interesting wow. because, let me say this, it was very interesting because I'm surrounded by all of these older white men and I'm mm-hmm. the only little black girl there and I made them laugh. You know, I have a great personality and I love working with different people. Yeah. But we walked out of there with a $250,000 check. Yes. Yes. And I credit that to Millie. I, it would wow. not have been possible without her. And on top of that, for over 10 years, the bank has appointed two members to our board of directors. And each of those members are responsible. Their get is uh, $5,000 a year. So all of that is credited yes. for two million. And she yep. never asked for a dime. Never it's, I think it just goes to show you just really need to sit down with each board member and figure out what they can bring to the table because you never know. You never know what they can bring to the table and don't disregard board members and people because of that 5%. And a lot of times we write people off because of that 5%. But again, we got 80% in identification and qualifying and cultivating before we even got to the 5% of the ask. And that's fundraising. That's amazing. I love a good formula. I love a good percentage. I think it really helps people wrap their brain around it and it makes it easier to understand. But this has been so fantastic, Sabrina. I know everyone's going to want to connect with you. Where can they find you online? Yeah, so I'm going to direct everybody to my website. And it's www.supportingworldhope.com. Once you're there, you can connect with me all over social media, you know, look at have my webinars and all of that. So that's the easiest way to do. And that's the one thing I learned. Do one call to action. So supportingworldhope.com yes. is my call to action. <laughs> supportingworldhope.com. She's got a great board recruitment guide. And many other resources on the site. So Sabrina, thanks so much for taking the time to be here today, sharing your enthusiasm and energy, even though it's early in the morning. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And your wisdom. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. 
I'll be back soon with a brand new episode. But until then, you can find me on Instagram at juliacampbell77. Keep changing the world, you nonprofit unicorn. Thank you.